year, we are going to be continuing our way in the life of Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. Most recently, last week, we saw Elijah at Zarephath. And uh, there we saw God providing for the widow and, and that wonderful resurrection story of her son. Um, but all of this came, of course, in the context of the reign of Ahab. Ahab, uh, a not very good king, a very, very bad king, in fact, who was leading his people uh, to worship Baal. And it's for that reason that there has been no rain in Israel for some three years and it's there where we are going to pick up this morning. We're going to be moving through the text as we go this morning, so let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Oh, Father, we need you with us this morning. We need your presence. We pray, would you speak to us uh, through your word? Oh, would you help us to see our sin this day? And would you help us to turn to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So let's start looking at our text, starting at verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now God could, of course, send rain anytime he wanted, right? He could have done it in any way, but he needs Ahab to go and to tell everyone why. Because if it just started raining after three plus years, three and a half years, what would they think? They would think, oh, Baal, Baal's come back, and, and, and he's brought the rain with him, and they, what would they do? They would fall down, and they would worship Baal, and that's not at all what God wants, does he? He wants them worshiping him and him only, and that's the reason for the, the big spectacle, if you will, the big show we'll see in our passage uh, this morning, but even though there's going to be that kind of big occurrence up there on Mount Carmel this morning, God is also at work in the quiet ways in our passage He's not just work in the big flashy ways, but also in the quiet ways. Look at verse 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in the cave, and he fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys, Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it, and Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. What's going on here? You have the king of Israel. His people are starving. And what is he concerned about? His horses and his mules. He's concerned about his animals. That's where his priority lies. He doesn't want any of his animals to die. No doubt people throughout Israel are dying of starvation. And yet that's what the low to which the king of Israel has fallen. And yet we have Obadiah, Obadiah who we, we, we read feared the Lord greatly. And what had Obadiah been doing? He had taken a hundred of the prophets of God, of Yahweh, and what had he done? He, he hid them away to keep them safe. And he didn't just hide them away and keep them safe. Somehow, he's been able, even in the midst of the famine, he's been able to keep them fed. Yet nobody knows about it. Nobody's heard about it. Obadiah is quietly working behind the scenes, even as he serves in Ahab's court, he's quietly behind the scenes protecting God's prophet. It's, it's quite amazing when we think about it. We, we like the big flashy things, but here is Obadiah, what is he doing? He's quietly, quietly serving, not making a big show of himself. And of course, Obadiah is about to come into contact with Elijah. Obadiah and Elijah, they are pretty drastically different individuals. 
to say the least. I was thinking about the Lord of the Ring. In the Lord of the Rings, you have like Frodo, one of the hobbits, right? The hobbits, they're really quiet people. They don't like to go very far. Bilbo describes them this way. Uh, hobbits uh, must seem of little importance because neither they're, rena- they're neither renowned as great warriors nor are they among the very wise. In fact, it has been remarked that some of the hobbits' only real passion is food. Um, I think that's rather unfair, he goes on to say, uh, because we are also very keen, have a very keen interest in brewing ales and smoking pipe weed. You know, they have other concerns, but our hearts truly lie in peace and quiet, good tilled earth. That's what a hobbit looks like. That's, that, that's, that's who Bilbo is, right? And, and yet, it's him and Gandalf, a wizard, this incredibly powerful man, at times bold and brash, and yet it takes both types to go out and save Middle-earth uh, in the, that Lord of the Rings story, doesn't it? It takes both of them. Um, and I think in our passage, we see it takes different types, and God uses different types of people. He uses Obadiahs, and he uses Elijahs. Let's read verse 7. As Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him, and he fell on his face, and he said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. Listen to how Obadiah reacts. How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you. And now you say, here, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone off from now, I know what's going to happen, the spirit of the Lord will carry you away, and I'll not know where you are. And so, when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell the Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he will kill me. Obadiah is kind of, he sounds like he's almost stumbling over himself, doesn't he? He's a very nervous guy, not incredibly bold. Very different than we think of Elijah, right? Elijah is a very, very bold guy. And and Obadiah has right reason to worry, doesn't he? I mean, he's been right in the heart of it. Elijah's kind of been off, protected, kind of removed. Obadiah has been right in the heart of it. He's seen Ahab and Jezebel up front. He's been working very diligently, to keep God's prophets fed. He appropriately has a fear of Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah tells him, verse 15, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Abadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. They're very different individuals, aren't they? So different. Elijah is a confrontational type guy, we mentioned. At times, maybe even we would call Elijah a little on the rude side, maybe. You know, he seems a little provocative at times. We'll see that in our story this morning. And yet you have Obadiah, who is faithful too. Our text calls him faithful, but he doesn't seem to like confrontation, right? We see that just as he stumbles over himself, as he stumbles over his his conversation. And, And yet, What is God able to do with these two very different individuals with very different temperaments? He's able to use use them both. He's able to use them both. I mean, can you imagine Elijah if he had Obadiah's job? Can you imagine Elijah lasting for a day in Ahab's court 
and trying to secretly take care of God's prophets. I don't think it would work. He's too bold. He's too brash. Could you imagine Obadiah doing what we're about to see Elijah do and go up and confront the 450 prophets of Baal? No, they're very different individuals. Yet Yahweh uses them both. God uses them both. One commentator puts it this way. He says faithfulness is not so dull that it only comes in one flavor. God can, and he does use all sorts of people. We should be thankful for that. And we should be desiring that God would use us how he has uniquely made us with the unique temperaments we each have. God desires to use each and every one of us. It may not look the same. It may not be bold and flashy like Elijah. But he desires to use each one of us to share the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he uses Obadiah to to keep a hundred prophets safe, as he uses Elijah to be the bold mouthpiece that we're going to see this morning before the prophets of Baal. Now, even as God uses different people, don't, don't think somehow this means that he's okay with not full faithfulness. He, he wants full faithfulness, and, and that's in fact what we see as we continue in our passage. Elijah and Ahab meet, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? But you have, and, and he said, I, I have not troubled Israel. Sorry, Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. What basically happens, Ahab accuses Elijah. Then Elijah accuses Ahab. And we're having this kind of going back and forth. And basically the decision, as we're going to see, is to take it out back. Okay? And so that begins verse 19. Now therefore, Elijah says, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Yet again, we see the great problem, 950 prophets, or sorry, I can't do the math, 850 prophets provided for by Elijah and his wife Jezebel while the people of Israel are starving. And Elijah says, let's go meet at Mount Carmel. Now, this is in the heart of, of Baal country, if you will. Okay, it's right on Israel's border with Phoenicia. This is taking the battle to to to. to, to Um, Baal's court, okay? He's going to have home court advantage. Verse 20, so Ahab sent to uh, the people of Israel and he gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. All of, all of Israel is gathered. Now, does this mean every single person in Israel is gathered? Probably not. But the call has gone out for all to come. And a great representative is there. And this is really important because ultimately, what's at the heart of what's going on here in this ba- is a battle for the hearts of those people. It's a battle for the hearts of those people. A people who Elijah calls out for what? Limping between two different opinions. There's a syncretism that has happened in Israel where there's some Yahweh worship and some Baal worship, and they're mixing the two things together that shouldn't be mixed together. I'm reminded, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and in Savannah, St. Patrick's Day is like a national holiday, okay? Whole city shuts down, okay? Now, it's interesting because it starts off with a worship service. It's on all the local television stations, 
And then as soon as that service is done, the green beer starts flowing. And the great parade ensues and it all ends with a pretty, pretty wild party down on River Street in Savannah. Now what's odd about that is of course the whole supposed meaning of the day, it's about a guy named St. Patrick. And who was he? He was a guy who was enslaved by the Irish. And he got free. And then what does he do? He takes the gospel back to Ireland. That's the whole reason why there's a St. Patrick's Day. And yet we, we, we mix and we mold, and yeah, there's a little bit of conversation about St. Patrick, but then there's a whole lot of partying and just living by the world's standards. And there's this mashup, and that mashup just doesn't really work. Elijah says, how long are you going to go on linking between these two opinions? Between Baal, yeah, it's easy to worship Baal. It's the state-sponsored religion, right? You know, so it's convenient. It's, it's very tangible. I mean, if you're a farmer, you want to worship Baal because you want the rains to come. And I don't mean to be too crass, but it can also be pretty fun. If you're having a bad day, you can go down to the temple and you can visit a prostitute there. And it can be part of your worship. Elijah says you can't limp any longer between these two things. You can't limp between these two things. As much as Jesus said in Matthew 6, do you remember? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We can't limp between two options. What opinions are you limping between? Okay, yes, you're here this morning worshiping the one true God. But what other opinions do you limp to through the rest of the week? We could ask some questions. We ask them often. What, what is it that excites you? What is it that brings great joy into your life? What would you be so happy if you could have? Or vice versa, what makes you so angry? What sets you off? What makes you sad or depressed? And likely there you'll, you'll find that thing that you go to instead of God as you walk into your week. And you may say this morning, well, I'm worshiping God and him alone, but then what do we do? Elijah says we limp between two opinions and we limp over to these other gods, thinking somehow they have something to offer us. So Elijah says, let's fight. Verse 22, I, even I only, am left of the prophets of the Lord. Now, Elijah knows about the hundred in the cave. What he's talking about is they're up there on the mountain and he's the only one and it's 450 prophets of Baal. But Baal has his 450 prophets Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers, he is God. And all the people said, it is well spoken. Elijah says, let's have a throwdown. Maybe you've seen uh, throwdown with Bobby Flay. What does he do? He, he, he goes to somebody else's territory, right? So if, he, if he's making shrimp and grits, he's going to Savannah, Georgia, or Charleston, South Carolina, or something like that, right? And he goes against one of the best chefs who makes really good shrimp and grits. And he doesn't have the best track record. If you watch the show, 32 wins, 68 losses. Why? Because he goes onto their territory, making their dishes, not his own. Elijah calls him to a showdown, a throwdown. 
And he said, everything is stacked against Elijah. Everything's stacked against his God, Yahweh, right? I mean, the location, they're in enemy territory. They're playing on, on, on the other team's home court. The number of prophets, one of him, 450 prophets of Baal. And not to mention, we'll see in a minute, what does he do to make it even more to his disadvantage? They pour water on it. And then because one pot of water is not enough, they pour another. And then because that's not enough, they pour another until it's just like overflowing with water. And Elijah says that the God who answers by fire, he is God. This should be easy for Baal, right? Baal's the God of the storm, so he should be able to easily shoot down one of his lightning bolts. This should be no problem at all for the prophets of Baal. And the people, they all seem to be quite satisfied with these rules, don't they? Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull, prepare it. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, they prepared it, and they called out upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar they had made. Should be no surprise that that word shows back up for us. That's now what the prophets are doing. They're just limping around. And they've been given an advantage here. Not only do they have home court advantage and all those other advantages, they've been allowed to go first. If the lightning bolt comes down, if the fire engulfs, then Elijah's already lost and he didn't even get a chance. But there is no answer. Baal is silent. And all the prophets can do is limp around. And so we get to verse 27, the one that you all know and you're also excited to hear. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, don't you, we get, why do we get so excited about this verse? Cry, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Elijah mocks him. And what he's doing here, understand, is he's demonstrating the utter foolishness of Baal worship the utter foolishness of any sort of worship to any other God than Yahweh. They worshiped a God who, well, he may be distracted. Maybe he's using the restroom. Maybe he's on a long trip and they just got to wait for him to get back. Or maybe most importantly, maybe he's just sleeping or hibernating, if you will. And do remember, that's what the Baal worshipers really thought, is that he was in some sort of death kind of hibernation at the hands of Mott. The, the God of death. And he's just waiting for the goddess Anat to come, come to him and, and bring life back to him and for him to come up. What is Elijah doing? He's making fun, understand, of their get-out-of-jail-free card for their god, Baal, if you will. You see, they had all sorts of excuses. If their god doesn't answer, they, and he lists out some of their, their excuses, and this last one being the most profound of them all, that Oh, he's just hibernating. He's asleep. Don't worry. He's going to come back again because he always does, right? And then the rains come back. But for now, they just have excuses for him. How do they respond? Verse 28, they cried aloud. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. How disgusting. Do you realize, though, this morning, that these prophets screaming out for so long that they're doing precisely what you and I find ourselves doing far too often as we pursue the idols of our hearts, whatever that other thing is that we're limping in between, those other things, as we cry out to them, thinking somehow this thing, this whatever it is, this money, this whatever, if I have it, then what? I will be happy and I'll be healthy and I'll be whole. 
And how interesting that this morning we, we look at, at this picture. We, we, we look at what's going on with these prophets of Baal, and what do we say? We say, how silly. How silly they are. They're, 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 could you be so stupid? Maybe even if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you're just kind of listening in on our conversation this morning, you're probably thinking like, these people are crazy, aren't they? Doing all this for this God that's never going to answer them? But I think if all of us, if we take a close look at our life, we'll see that all too often we are precisely this silly. That, that maybe we go about even with our own God. And we, we try to do the things like the, the, the Baal worshipers are of what? Trying to arouse him. You know what I mean? Thinking somehow we can manipulate him. If we say the right words to him, then he will have to answer us. And he, you know, maybe somehow we can control him and we can make him do what we want him to do. Maybe we do that at times. And more often than not, we find ourselves doing what? But bowing our knee before other things, other things that we think are going to somehow make us happy and healthy and whole. And we know the track record, don't we? Do you know the track record of going to those things? Thinking that, oh, if I just have that. I think we all know the track record. They may be pleasant for a moment, but over time, we find them so incredibly lacking. We don't find death in them. Instead, as we see in verse 29, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Their God, their supposed God, remains silent, incapable of doing anything. Even when everything is stacked in Baal's favor, he's not able to say a word or do a thing. The silence, let's make sure we understand, is the silence that all will hear who do not trust in Christ. Whatever that thing is that you're looking to, whatever that thing that you are hoping in, it's never going to answer you. At the end of day, at the end of time, it's going to remain silent. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus, all you're going to hear is silence. It will never whatever that God is, whatever that thing is, whatever that thing is that you're limping in between, it will never come to your rescue. It will never come to save you. In contrast to this, we have Elijah. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. What does he do? He does what Israel should have been doing, building an altar to their great God. Worshiping the one true God. He, he's, he's doing in picture form for the people. They're, they're able to see him. He says, come up here and watch. He wants them to learn. He wants them to see how to worship the one true God. He's, he's, he's demonstrating for them what it would look like. And continuing in the text, he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he, he put the wood in order. 
and he cut the bull into pieces and he laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Then he did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and it filled the trench also with water. The deck, the deck is now completely stacked against him, isn't it? Elijah's going out of his way to make sure that there can be no doubt to what happens. That there can be no doubt that if Yahweh does in fact bring down fire, that he in fact is God. And that if the rain that we're going to see next week, if it truly does come, it comes at the hands of Yahweh, not some supposed God, Baal. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that this day you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. You see how distinct this is from what the Baal worshipers were doing? They were running around crazy, limping along, cutting themselves, screaming, crying out. Elijah prays. He prays knowing, and with those words, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, he prays knowing that he has a covenant-keeping God, a God who keeps his promises. Elijah doesn't need the theatrics. He knows he has a God that isn't moved by the theatrics. He cannot be manipulated. And so Elijah... He prays, he prays that Yahweh would answer him, whereas Baals remain silent, that the people would be able to see the answer of his great God. And that answer comes, doesn't it? Verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust. I mean, just everything, it's usually stones and dust don't just burn up. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. The fire fell, consumed everything. And we're reminded of those words that Elijah spoke back in verse 24. That the God who answers by fire, he is God. God on that day proved himself, didn't he? He proved himself to us too, 2,000 years ago, when he sent his son When he sent his son, the one who lived and the one who died and the one who proved himself by what? Rising from the dead. And he's not a God like Baal. Remember Baal, what are they they doing? You know, somehow like Baal needs to be roused from his sleep. Jesus did not need to be roused from the grave by anyone crying out. In fact, he was able to raise himself up from the dead. Remember Jesus' own words? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. 
we've, Jesus has proved who he is, that he is God. Now, as we look at this passage and as we kind of come towards a conclusion here this morning, maybe you're also struck by just the sharp contrast here between God speaking and, and the people's answer and yet the slaughter of the prophets of Baal. I think sometimes that gives us a little heartache and we wonder how does all that fit together? Sometimes I think we have totally wrong ideas and maybe we say things like the the Old Testament God is somehow a bit different than the New Testament God. We forget that our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I think we get this idea somehow that that God is like a composite of things and and so sometimes he's acting out of his justice and, and sometimes he's acting out of a love as though these are like different parts of him. And different parts of him that may at sometimes almost be at battle with one another. God is not a composite of these different things. As if his justice and love, for instance, are somehow at odds with one another. He's not made of parts. Understand this, there is no such thing as one of God's attributes removed from the rest. He is perfectly all of them. And he's perfectly all of them all of the time. He is justice and he is love. He's identical to all of his attributes. He is all of them all the time, never forsaking a single one of them. Maybe it'll be help. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He says, when God justifies a sinner, everything in God is on the sinner's side. All the attributes of God are on the sinner's side. It isn't that the mercy is pleading for the sinner and the justice is trying to beat him to death and sometimes I think that's the picture that we have. No, all of God does all that God does. What does that have to do with our passage this morning? We see justice being entered in, right, in verse 40. As Elijah calls out to slaughter the prophets, a fulfillment of of Deuteronomy 13 where we read, but that prophet, the prophets who lead his people away shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Why are they put to death? It seems awfully bad. Is this really necessary? Well, yes, it's that necessary because what they were doing was that bad. It was treason. Treason against the one true God. And so God, on that day, through the work of Elijah, he goes to battle. And justice is brought forth. And and we get a little uneasy with it. And you know what's interesting is I don't think we get quite as uneasy when we think like even modern day warfare and our soldiers are on the ground and they're fighting the enemy. What do we expect? That the enemy is going to die and, and it doesn't bother us quite as much? Maybe it still bothers us a bit. We don't understand that this is a much greater battle than any battle we can imagine. No greater battle for the for, for enemy, for the people of Israel in that day that needed, desperately needed to do, be defeated. This is a war on, a, on an incredible scale and it needed to be fought. God's people needed to be liberated from these false prophets. And war rages around us today too, doesn't it? But... Our weapons are not the sword 
anymore. Paul talks about it this way. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Of course, not literally killing anything in this instance, but putting away all those things that draw us away from Christ. Putting to death all those things that we might limp over towards instead of him. They need to be put to death. But it's not enough that they just be put to death. Look at verse 37. Answer me. Look at Elijah's prayer. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. You see, what happened to Mark Helmer? It wasn't just a contest. It wasn't just a throwdown to see who's God. It was that, don't get me wrong. But there's something else going on. There's a sacrifice, isn't there? God, as we see and as Elijah prays, is after the hearts of his people. They're gathered there that day in hopes that they will repent. They will know the need for a blood sacrifice to be paid for them. For their limping over to other gods and, and going after Baal. And that they'll come back to the one true God repenting of their sin. Don't miss that what we see here is a picture of Christ and his work. Jesus also fought an incredible contest, didn't he, to prove himself. But it wasn't just to prove himself. Paul puts it this way, and you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He won the contest. He proved himself. But don't miss that's not all that was going on here. We see the most incredible picture this world has ever seen of how justice and love come together. Elijah set the table for the sacrifice and he, he backed up. He no doubt knew what was coming. Jesus allows himself to be tied to the pieces of wood. And the fire of our almighty God came down upon him. Came down upon not a bull, but the son of God. And the people on that day saw what God did. What did they do? Verse 39. They fell on their faces. And they said, Lord... He is God. The Lord, he is God. They saw on that day how God is perfectly just and how he is also perfectly love, perfect love. God had been so gracious 
to a people who deserved no, no grace, right? And they have been overcome by what's just taken place that they can't help but do what? They can't help but proclaim the one who is the true God. What about you? What about me? How long are we going to go on limping between two opinions? God has been so gracious to us. A people who understand it. Maybe this is where you need to start if you can't quite say it. A people who don't deserve grace. If you think you deserve it, then you don't understand it. God has been so gracious to us. A people who do not deserve grace. Who deserve his full justice. And yet he has poured it out upon his son instead of upon us. My friends, the contest has already been won. The sacrifice has already been made. The question for us is, how do we respond? Let's pray. Oh, Father, how thankful we are for your word. How thankful we are for the way that you have shown yourself in the days of Elijah, the ways you have shown yourself in the day of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, would you grow us in understanding of what you have done on our behalf, that our Savior has come, has lived, has died, conquered sin and death through his death, winning the context contest, but that he also has paid the ultimate price so that we who, who, who rightly deserve rightly deserve death have been given life we thank you this day would you help us to praise your wonderful name pray this in the name of your beloved son Jesus Christ Amen.